From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 109 of the Killing It podcast. I just realized I'm pointing to the screen and you can't see it because I, I got to point to the camera. No, exactly. See, oh, wow. if I have everyone, we do that live and he does actually cue, try and cue us now to make sure that that is all on target. We do benefit from stage direction. Yeah. I'm just, you know, kind of an idiot when it comes to actually executing because I just realized I'm pointing to the screen. You'd think after 109 episodes, we would be like, down. But no, everybody, it is still fresh and new every week. And we're actually less coordinated about it than we used to be. So, you know. You know. <laughs> Clearly, the comfort of getting together has made this easier, but slightly looser. Exactly. All righty. So what are we doing in episode 109? Well, let's before we dive in, we are sponsored this week. Uh, want to learn about trends in managed services, including sales, governance, or winning in biopharma? How about an MSP peer panel or a CompTIA's Carol and April with their latest research in managed services trends? Ignite's first annual MSP Summit is coming May 11th, and it's keynote by our very own Carl Polichuk on setting a cloud strategy. The first 300 attendees even get a copy of Carl's book on becoming a successful MSP in 30 days. Win prizes, network with peers, all in a half-day online event. Register for free right at ignite.com slash mspradio. Very cool. Well, and I have to say, I am actually having fun putting together my slide deck for that. So, and it's one of these few events where I get to do the keynote and then later in the day have an open forum Q&A panel with uh, MSP folks. So. And, and, and by the way, in the spirit of supporting the people who support us, uh, a year or so ago, we had a conversation here where we observed all the offline real world events that suddenly were forced to go online sucked and that we needed to kind of pay attention learn how to do events better i am happy to report that a year into this whole process some of the people in this world have listened and done that and some of these online events are dramatically improved much more interactive actually a lot of fun to attend so kudos guys nicely done well, I'm yes. going to kick us off with a first topic this week, and I'm going to we're going to we're going to dive right in on Sirius. So we're going to this is a link to New York Times article, and it follows up on a discussion that's been going on for a long time. And the uh, headline: Master Slave and the Fight Over Offensive Terms in Computing. To deep dive into the argument that the Internet Engineering Task Force is having around naming and naming conventions, terms like master and slave, whitelist and blacklist, and talking about how do we focus on computer engineering terms that are tied to a racist history. It's interesting about the article, and I encourage everyone to really read this to understand how the organization works, because they work very much on a consensus model, and they've got interesting models of uh, ways of voting and, and getting information. So they are trying to get to consensus which you can appreciate in this realm is very difficult to do. <laughs> Whereas it's not necessarily coming to the best engineering, we are debating larger ideas. You know, my takeaway here really was 
how important it is that words matter and that, that we that I'm glad to see this going through, but it is a particularly rough transition time. Ryan, I knew you had some particular thoughts on some of this, and I'll kick it over to you first. Uh, I, I do have some thoughts on this, and I think that it is an indication of the further maturing and mass adoption of our industry. There once was a time where you and I and a few other admittedly, uh, you know, focused individuals were the only ones alive who knew what this terminology actually was. Did you know, other people who work in sales and they run restaurants and they sell cars and they build houses, 99.9% .9 of the people had never heard of this terminology. And when it was established, it was never intended to be offensive. I completely understand that. It was not done for exclusionary purposes. It was just a very small group of people who had a very focused conversation. Today, very many more people are aware of the internet and about networking and about internal, what we have always referred to as just weird technical jargon. And it's now mass media conversations. It is in that maturing process when every industry has to admit it's no longer just up to us and the people who work here to make these decisions. The world's paying attention and you got to pay attention to the world. And that means that we need to be careful about the, the terminology. Now, the first thing I would observe in this article, whenever you get a quote from Vince Cerf about what's happening in Internet standards, I listen because that guy kind of invented it all right. Uh, the, the other thing that I will observe is this doesn't have to be difficult. To transition from something like a blacklist, I, I get what it is and black hat insecurity, right? But to move from a blacklist to a block list, well, duh. That, that seems pretty obvious. That seems low maintenance and it's not going to hurt anybody's feelings to do this. But I will take this a step further and say even when it is a consensus-based world and even when this is an organization that wants everybody to agree in mass to do certain things, I am of the opinion that there comes a time in the maturing cycle of an industry when it's no longer up for debate and we just need to grab people by their shoulders and drag them into the modern world and say, this is now a grown-up industry. This is no longer a niche. It is no longer just a couple of guys back there in that dark room that nobody ever pays attention to. This is prime time for the technology industry. Time to grow up and act like it. Well, and I think I first heard the term master slave in the 1980s, you know, and my first response to it way back then is, who the hell came up with that? Right? <laughs> how can we, you know, how can this be standard terminology? Other things, whitelist, blacklist, I can see where people, you know, would say, well, I don't find that offensive or whatever. Um, but remember, you can't control what other people are offended by. And, you know, you, you, you can have an opinion and this and that, but at some point, you know, if you could look at one industry that has jargon, no industry has more jargon than we do. We have acronyms inside of acronyms. We were there's, there's a winning there's a winning thing. We've won the title. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in fact, uh, what there was one that was uh, technology without an interesting name. What was that? Anyway, we we have so many of these things. 
only a microscopic percentage of them are offensive to anybody. So just make a list, call it something else. Well, and, and the, my take on this is oftentimes is, is that, you know, there are a lot of people that are saying, oh, it's not offensive, who are not actually necessarily the targeted or influenced group, particularly in an industry that is incredibly white and male. <laughs> it's is uh you know we we need to it does it is not necessarily hard to make the extra effort to not be a jerk right that's the way i always look at it and say like if we're making like we're it's the effort worthwhile to not be not be mean to other to other people it's worth the time and you know i keep falling back on this because by the way it's true like an investment in diversity has been proven to create higher performing organizations if we as an industry want to take advantage of that oh i don't know 20 percent performance gain that you can get by this maybe taking the time to, to to be diligent about this is worth it to be a place where truly anyone can be equals can can have the same opportunity it's worth the investment so I look at it from that perspective and say, like, I want to go that extra mile because I want, I like outperforming. I've always been in the business of being in businesses that outperform. <laughs> so this looks to me like a pretty natural place to spend my time. Exactly. Well, and see, this is the thing, right? I, I, I always struggle to think about any issue without also then thinking about it through the lens of a sales guy. Right. If I am a sales human and I am out there trying to communicate this stuff to people, we have been taught for years to stop it with the jargon, to try really hard to get out of our own way. And by the way, Carl, Twain was always one of oh, my right. favorite uh, acronyms that uh, uh, it made me chuckle all alongside JBOD because just a bunch of discs is uh, exactly how I would describe that stuff, right? Um, some of them are creative and we chuckle at them and they have always been used as jargon always is to indicate the in crowd and the out crowd. Who are we and a uh, community as a tribe, we identify with one another because we speak the same language. Again, that's cool inside if that's the only thing, the, the only communication you ever do. But if you ever need to go communicate this to a customer and all you can do is spew jargon and acronyms, customers will very quickly stop listening to you and in fact begin to avoid you. I've been saying to sales humans for, for decades now, speak English or wherever you are, speak that language, right? If it's French Canadian, if it's Spanish, speak the language your customers speak and they might actually want to listen to you. Well, I'll end this by, by saying I was encouraged by sort of the last quotes from the article, because, of course, that's always the way they try and tie it all up, that you know, the Internet Engineering Task Force is going to work on it. They're moving slowly, but their statement was, is we build consensus the hard way, but in the end, the consensus is usually stronger because people feel their opinions were reflected. You know, it's this is controversial. It's going to move slower, but I'm glad they're moving on it. And so I wanted to highlight this again, highlight this article because it is, my mind, worth the investment of time. It's interesting. It's been a long time since the, the you know, RFCs and the early days when the, these guys, these folks <laughs> really had to build consensus. And uh, it's nice to see somebody trying to do that in the 21st century. So our next topic, we're going to revisit uh, something we've discussed before, which is facial recognition. One of the things that's happened in the last year is some serious improvement in facial recognition because if you cover up half somebody's face and all of their smile um, and the size of their nose, 
it becomes harder to do facial recognition. So it's gotten better and better, kind of out of necessity. Uh, on the bad side, you have people who are demonstrating that even amateurs can get into facial recognition by looking at video of police during protests and picking out the key features so that they can do facial recognition of police so that they can uh, do some doxing and other things that may not be appropriate. But all of that improves the, the technology. And the, the conclusion to the article that we're going to point to in Wired is that you can't rely on tech to solve this problem created by tech. So we have to look to society and to governments to actually try to figure out how to limit it. I was doing some some listening. I was listening to a podcast myself on on the on facial recognition technology and some of the privacy concerns and what and particularly and to tie into our first story, the way it, it dealt with uh, with non white male faces and because some of the the intrinsic biases. What was interesting to me was, was that the uh, you know it was this element of the fact that it is not necessarily as reliable a technology as the makers of the technology want you to think it is, particularly because it is built on the idea of a probability, not an absolute. Often the way, way these algorithms you know, work is they, they return saying there is a X percentage chance that, that we are correct on this particular statement. And it is not saying we have definitively said this is who it, who it is. What we're saying is it is likely or not likely to be this. And we lose some of that subtlety, particularly in the way that it's sold. We know that how selling works, where it's easier to say, oh, it'll find and it'll tell you who versus it will give you guidance <laughs> that you, the human, can then use based on a probability score. That is a very different set of statements. And we, the technology experts, really need to think a lot about what it is that we are communicating, what the technology does, because there, that subtlety really matters. You're, you're correct. It, it matters because we need to be okay as a society assigning tasks to this new technology. What are we okay getting mostly right with this recognition technology? And what other things are we going to insist on absolute certainty in recognition? If I am going to use it as evidence in a court of law that you have committed a crime because I identified you by facial recognition, beyond a reasonable doubt is a standard well-established and respected. And that's not what these algorithms are designed to do. They're like, mm, it's a high probability that that was Dave, but that's not absolutely certain. And as a person who has been mistaken for looking like many other people in my life, when I travel around this world, I have one of those universal faces, right? Um, I, I'm often like, are you that guy? And I'm like, no, I'm not, but whatever, right? If there's no legal implication, it doesn't hurt my feelings. If there is a legal implication now, I have issues with this. Now, one of the other issues that they brought up in the article, and it's something I flash back to first day in college in my communications law class, where they started to teach us about the concepts of privacy and accuracy and libel and slander and all of those things, right? Um, privacy is a topic that we all prize. We all want our own privacy and we want to choose when we give it up. And, you know, like the paparazzi takes a picture of you on the street. 
You've got no expectation of privacy. They have every right to take a picture of you over your fence, through the trees from 10,000 yards away with computer equipment that allows them to take a picture of you naked in your own backyard. You do have an expectation of privacy and therefore there is a clear legal standard. I admit that facial recognition is leading us to a place where we will have dramatically lower expectation of privacy anytime we step outside of our own four walls. It, it, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel comfortable with that. I don't like the fact that the man might be able to create a trace of every step I've ever taken and everywhere I go. But I also carry a cell phone that basically does that for them anyway right. with my digital footprint. So I, I might not like it, but I'm going to admit that a technologically connected world will be drastically less private. I'm just going to insist that there is that standard of are you okay with mostly certain that that was Dave and not absolutely positively certain? Well, and you know, there's extremes to this argument. China is at one extreme. They have it everywhere all the time and use it to um, coordinate the activities of their own citizens. Portland has made it completely illegal, at least for government's uh, agencies to use. Um, somewhere in the middle, you know, we also have the smart city initiatives. You know, one piece of the smart city initiative is every camera we have access to gets accessed all of a sudden to track down uh, bad guys during an incident. And um, that technology is old. Right? <laughs> the, the ability to do that is not new and it's just getting better and better all the time. So I, I do applaud the appeal that we need to talk about this and we need to figure out what we want to do and what's appropriate. There is a shift in what constitutes privacy. And that's that's always been the case with technology. But the case of do you expect a certain level of privacy when you're in public, that is going to be one of the big questions for politicians in the next easily five or 10 years. And we certainly have precedent, right? There is precedent about you know, what levels of privacy you can expect in public versus versus what you could expect at home. Like, and, we, and you know, I've, I talk a lot about the idea of we have a lot of systems that we need to continue to use, like warrants, right? Like particularly when we think about in, in both in Europe and in, in particularly in the United States, when you think about data searches and, and you know, the, the ability for the government to, to find out something, we have a process for that. We actually do have a well-designed process for that. It may not be fast, but it is, but that's actually by design. And in many ways, ways, what we need to be doing is we need to be taking our previous precedents and make sure that they are updated and you know interpreted for the digital realm but that doesn't mean we're abandoning those those bits and we and i also you know I, i'm the first one always who stands up and says you know we need to recognize where a lot of what we're talking about now is the physical world that is there is a different thing happening in the pure digital pure digital world but particularly in the physical world we do have a lot of norms that we can already leverage for this kind of technology Absolutely true. And and that is where, again, the people who invented it, who are uh, all by all means appropriately trying to sell it and get people to adopt it, I get it, but they cannot be the ones who are then given the keys to self-regulate 
how it is applied in legal situations and in other commercial applications. I mean, not to put too fine a point on criticizing anybody, but I think we've all seen how that worked out when Facebook did it. And in the pure digital world, I think there, you know, might not be a lot of things we can all agree on, but we might all agree on, you know, they probably shouldn't be the ones regulating themselves and how they use your private data. Um, I, I wouldn't want to relearn that lesson with facial recognition in the physical world. So I, I buy that there needs to be an external approach to this. Well, I think probably last word on this is that we have listeners who are developing technologies based on facial recognition and integrating it into stuff for their clients. And, you know, just like everything else we've talked about in the last year, there's regulation coming. So yeah, you should prepare for it and make sure that you have a good use case justification for why you are doing these things. Absolutely. All right. True. All Final right. Topic. So, yeah. Let's jump to our third topic here. And, and in the spirit of being professional podcasters, this is very tightly coordinated with our previous topics as we as we continue a a conversation into the world of digital privacy, especially focused on your geolocation, who is tracking it, what they are doing with it, and what they are allowed to share and then use for commercial gain. Now, the uh, the link that we're going to put in there is to a group called Ethical Geo, and they've published a post that speaks to launching what they call the Locus Charter meaning that we are, again, by consensus, trying to establish some standards in the world that say, you know that geolocation data that is in my cell phone and your cell phone and tracks everywhere we go and every stinking step you take. When you get inside of that data, you get a little bit blown away by just how detailed and accurate it is and has been for many years. But now somebody is coming forward and saying, listen, let's put some standards in and establish some very precise language around what we will do and will not do. There are 10 points that they have outlined. And while none of these things in a consensus world is going to be just ratified unanimously the very first time around, I feel like they've done a pretty comprehensive job here. And there are many elements of it that I think are going in the right direction. Thoughts from you guys on this approach and on that concept of protecting our geolocation in general. Well, what, what an amazing thing when smart people get together and have thoughtful conversations about this stuff to actually come up with standards. Who would have thought? <laughs> I mean, you know, so, so this is one of those. I love the framework. I do absolutely love the framework because it, it seemed to hit on all of the stuff that I was looking for, the do no harm, the protect the vulnerable, addressing bias, like it was, it hit a lot of the the standards to this. Now, what was in, you know, the, obviously the, the bit that always comes into trouble with this is when groups like this need to plug into the people that are making money off of <laughs> off of these right. kinds of technologies, because it is one thing that, to set a bunch of standards in a vacuum, it is, completely another to try and get a group of group of organizations that are monetizing a technology without thought to this uh, to to fall into line. Um, I like the principles of it. I think it works rather well. For me, it's the trick of how do we get this into a measurable and in and I'll say an enforceable structure within society. 
particularly because that is that is not potentially contrarian to the people that are going to be making money off of it. Well, this is very much in line with uh, the contract for the web that we've talked about before. And, you know, I think one of their big audiences is developers, obviously. I mean, some of the, the guidelines are around collect the minimal amount of geo data that you need to get the job done. <laughs> I'm always surprised sometimes I add a new app to my phone and it's like, we need your location. I'm like, no, I don't think you do. <laughs> right? um, and, you know, it depends on what it's for, but sometimes you don't know why they're asking for it. Like the bank wants my location because they need to know that I'm not in Thailand and Sacramento at the same time, right? That's a legit thing to ask about. Um, but when it comes to things like medical records and so forth, you know, one of the things that we've learned in the, uh, the study of epidemiology is that statisticians try not to have a square that has so few people in it that you can actually figure out who they are. Like, oh, it must be Bob down the street who's got that disease, right? <laughs> so um, this is a piece of that discussion, and it is it literally amounts to, you know, another attempt to, hey, let's do these hand handful of things, and that will make us as a an organization more ethical. Well, see, and, and Carl, you touched on one of the applications of this technology that I am a very big fan of, the smart city initiatives, right? Um, the smart city is not just cameras and sensors. It is the ability to measure the movement of a population and to therefore prescribe the services and the resources that are made available to them as needed so that we don't have over or under resourcing in anything from roads to capacity in buildings to the staff at a government office, et cetera, right? I am a very big proponent of smart city initiatives and geolocation is almost mandatory in order to facilitate that application. However, I am also reminded that as a person who has more than one time benefited from find my phone technology. I, I think that's cool, right? I, I'm a big fan and it has saved me cash money more than one time. But I also am aware of a person who is going through a very difficult time in their personal life, marriage, some domestic abuse situations and some things that are going on. And therefore, they are leaving, they are getting out of that scenario, and by the way, need to still have a phone, need to get set up in a new apartment, need to go through all of these things. And I was reminded, because I didn't think of this first-hand application, of, a, of the scenario of, you know, your phone's still on the family plan. And that means that the person on the other side of your family plan still has the ability to look at their phone and tell precisely where that individual is. And hell no, that is not acceptable. And therefore, that's a very interpersonal example, but something that forces me as an advocate of smart cities to admit guys, we have not thought through this in enough detail, and therefore it requires a bunch of big brains to think hard and to imagine all the scenarios where this might be used inappropriately and put some dang standards in place. I, I, am, I am animated about it because it is, for all the cool that we can do with technology, when you are reminded of the, yeah, but did you think about X? And when that's not pie-in-the-sky weird imagined situation, but a very real 
human scenario, we are forced to go, okay, you're, you're smarter than everybody in the room technology industry, but I, might need some controls here. I completely believe that privacy is becoming a feature. Believe it, people, some people will pay a premium for it. And I worry about the people that may not be in the population moving towards it. Like I, I we, we were talking, our, we were warming up, talking before the show, and and I look at you know in, about something else, and I look at the the iOS versus Android as an example of of, of an eco of ecosystems where you know particularly with Apple about to make their their changes on privacy that are pretty aggressive around advertising stuff. Like there's going to be a population who now have privacy is even more of a of a feature. It's built into the technology, and there is another group of people who, for are either either choosing to spend less for the products and giving up privacy, or forced because of financial situations to be in that situation. And we have got to think through what are the fundamentals of privacy that we're going to to have as a society, and what are the bits that can be optional. Because you know, Ryan, your example is a great one. Is is we have to have a way of protecting, as they they list in this this uh, listing, protect the vulnerable. Well, and speaking of the vulnerable, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I wanted to bring into this discussion also that a little over a year ago I was in Cambodia, and one of the things the group I was with helping to you know girls to escape the sex slave trade, one of the things we were told is nobody can take pictures of anything because geolocation is on by default in every phone and in most cameras. And so even if you didn't do it, it's there. And if you post that picture up and don't do something to scrape that data, then people who want to find these locations can just literally download your photo and get that geolocation information. Now, it takes some sophisticated people to do that. But as we're learning in the world of ransomware, there are sophisticated people on the wrong side of the law. So, you know, there's some of this is, is a matter of, can we get the technology to solve the pieces uh, as well as getting the society to solve their pieces? Yep, see, and, and as we've said several times today, I am a big fan of the advancements of these technologies. I like facial recognition for what it does well. I appreciate smart cities. There are a lot of advancements that we are suddenly going to have access to. We just need to make sure we don't go out and redo dumb things again that we should have known better from past experiences. Well, then I will end it on, you know, by the way, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about all of these things if we did not think there was a place for technologists and people providing services around technology to have opinions and, of, and be part of this both discussion and solution. So we were, we we're bringing this up because, I mean, I keep saying it, I believe IT services companies are the ones that need to be getting involved because they have the expertise to assist from a societal perspective. Very good. And if you have opinions on any of this, put them in the comments, send us a note, and we would be happy uh, to respond to you. So Absolutely. <laughs> then also give us a thumbs up and share it and like it and all that happy stuff. And that will do it, everybody, for episode 109 of the Killing It Cold Podcast. It works way better when I point at the camera. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, 
and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.